This is Visa V, a new podcast series brought to you by the Alliance Program at Columbia University. Visa V features conversations that challenge our understanding of key global, economic, and social issues by casting them in a transatlantic perspective. I'm Emmanuel Catan. I head the Alliance Program, a partnership between Columbia University and three French universities Sciences Po, Paris and Panthéon Sorbonne, and Ecole Polytechnique. Every episode, I sit down face to face with, or as we say in French, vis a vis, some of the most insightful thinkers on both sides of the Atlantic. I hope you enjoy our conversation. In today's episode, we're asking the question Is India becoming an ethnic democracy? Since being elected Prime Minister in 2014, Narendra Modi and the BJP party he leads have implemented legislation and policies that call into question India's commitment to democracy. Today, legitimate dissent in India is compromised. The BJP has used the Unlawful Activities Prevention Act to designate individuals as terrorists without providing corroborating evidence. And provisions in the penal code have been invoked to silence journalists. Three years ago, the Indian parliament passed a law providing a pathway to citizenship for persecuted minorities from neighboring countries, explicitly excluding individuals of Muslim faith. Is India's democracy in decline? Will the BJP's majoritarian rule erode India's tradition of pluralism, secularism, and religious tolerance? Do authoritarian features of the current government point towards India becoming an ethnic, illiberal democracy? To answer these questions, we brought together two experts on India, Christophe Jafrelot and Manan Ahmed. Christophe Jafrelot, you're a professor of South Asian politics at Sciences Po and a professor of Indian politics at King's College London. You've written a great number of books and articles about India and Pakistan. Let me just mention the two most recent ones, Majoritarian State, How Hindu Nationalism is Changing India, and Modi's India, Hindu Nationalism and the Rise of Ethnic Democracy. Manan Ahmed, you're an associate professor of history at Columbia University. You're also the author of several publications on South Asia. In 2016, you published a book of conquest, The Shahnama and Muslim Origins in South Asia. And in 2020, your book, The Loss of Hindustan, The Invention of India, was published by Harvard University Press. Professor Jafrulu, let me start with you. Your book, Modi's India, describes in great detail Narendra Modi's rise to power. He spent 13 years as chief minister of Gujarat before his election as prime minister of India in 2014. How did his term in Gujarat prefigure his leadership of India today? And are there policies, specific policies implemented in Gujarat that shaped his politics? Well, definitely, Narendra Modi learned how to be a politician in Gujarat. He was primarily a cadre in a very important organization, the RSS, Rashtriya Swayamsevak Sangh, that is the matrix of the Hindu nationalist movement since 1925, a very, very old organization. And after uh, becoming chief minister of Gujarat in 2001, he became a politician and he had to, in fact, invent his own repertoire, uh, something he did very creatively, really, uh, if, if you want to look at it positively, because he combined Hindu nationalism, the uh, RSS ideology, and uh, populism. That is something you can see 
in, of course, a very dramatic matter in 2002 when uh, the anti-Muslim pogrom uh, that took place in Gujarat resulted in the death of something like 2,000 Muslims. So he was chief minister and in a way presided over uh, this uh, pogrom that was the Hindu nationalist uh, facet of his um, trajectory. Um, only a few months after he became chief minister. But he balanced that and he combined that with a new style, a style that you can call populist because he claimed that he was the people, that he represented the people, um, partly because he was from the plebeians. He is someone from a low, with a low caste background. He was selling tea on the platform of the station of his little town. At least that's what the legend says. He could say, I am the people and, uh, and I'm going to fight for the people against elite people. That's something nobody had really tried before. But last and not least, he did it in a very sophisticated manner. He is very tech savvy. He was the first one to use social media. He was the first one to use holograms. He was the first one to, to use also TV channels dedicated to his campaigns in 2007, 2012. You mentioned the riots in Gujarat in 2002. Turning to you, Professor Ahmed, what was the background to this violence? What role did it play in the rise of Narendra Modi? And how was he able to capitalize on these riots? So, you know, let me just begin by saying, I think one of the things that Christoph's uh, book has given us, Modi's, Modi's India, is a, a template for how the last 20 years um, of Indian politics has shifted in a, in a remarkable manner, such that the world of Vajpayee or Indira Gandhi almost seems kind of unimaginable anymore. And part of that is the question of violence. And part of that is the routinization of violence and the use of violence as a, as a flashpoint or as an exemplary case for the state to, um, to enact its, its will. Everything from where in Gujarat under Amit Shah Modi, there are very routine types of violence, encounter killings, specific targeting of individuals who are shot and killed, and then told to the press that these are Pakistani agents or terrorists to spectacular violence, such as the, the 2002 pogroms against Muslims that you know, Modi became kind of internationally known for. Um, but there's a connection between these very small encounter killings and these types of um, orchestrated state uh, police involved uh, pogroms, as one would one would call it, and that's the kind of question of violence that creates a set of what Christoph calls in his book these um, the the vigilante um, state, right? The state that in which you know an organization of young people like the Bajrang Dal is the kind of force that mobilizes at the very local level at the level of the neighborhood or the the bazaar and where what happens in february 2002 as as we know is is connected intimately to to 9-11 to 2001 in in terms of a global conversation against muslims um, but for india it has its roots really with 1947-48 
uh, when when Jawaharlal Nehru's prime minister, uh, who's the prime minister, his uh, home minister, uh, begins the campaign to rebuild the Somnath Temple. So right from the very beginning, 52, 51, there is a there is an idea in Gujarat precisely and in other parts, which is that we need a return to a Hindu golden age um, after a dark uh, period of Muslim rule and then a liberal colonial uh, phase, um, but also 1992 when um, a mosque, Babri Masjid, is demolished by um, uh, car sevaks, by apparatics of RSS, BJP, um, Bajrangdal and other, uh, and this this demolition of a mosque is a type of, I think, radical act of, of mass politics um, that really the person who has gotten a hold of it and you and 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 turned it into the authoritarian vigilante state is Narendra Modi. Anti-Muslim politics, as you show, Professor Ahmed, is a very important dimension of Modi's populism. Another appeal of his populism, it seems to me, is the fact that he's been able to position the BJP as a friend both of upper castes and of Dalits and so-called lower castes. How did his party achieve such a feat? And does that mean that different messages are being put to different groups of people or that similar policies appeal to both the upper castes and the so-called lower castes? Professor Jafolo. The poor, the lower caste people, uh, can somewhat look at him as one of the representatives, as one of them. This is something that uh, is very well documented in Pierre Ostig's uh, analysis of populism. The populist is the leader who can be both, like me and a super a superhero in a way, a superhuman. That's one. Another explanation is, of course, um, when you highlight religion, as the main identity, you can claim, forget about your class, forget about your caste, you are part of a majority, the group, you deserve to prevail, and the other is the Muslim or the Christian. But there is a third explanation that is uh, a more complicated one, uh, and this is what I call the, the paradox of reservations. Now, reservations in India is another word for positive discrimination, a, 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 mad, a major achievement of the Indian Republic, really, uh, to have quotas for the untouchables, uh, the lowest castes, which in that system could get 15% of the seats in the universities, 15% of the seats in the bureaucracy, and 15% of the seats in the assemblies, in parliament. Well, some of these groups of untouchables, ex-untouchables, we call them Dalits, in fact, they call themselves Dalits. Uh, some of the subgroups within these Dalits could corner most of the reservations. And uh, from one generation to the next one, from father to son, you have the same families, the same groups of families, the same subcasts, which monopolized reservations at the expense of other Dalits, which could not get access to this. And therefore, you have a division within the Dalits that BJP was very shrewd in exploiting. 
and they have nominated at the time of elections those who could not get access to reservations, representatives of those who could not get access to quotas. And that resulted in massive support at the time of elections. And there is one last explanation that is what we call Sanskritization. Sanskritization is, is the word that has been introduced by the uh, Indian anthropologist M. N. Srinivas to say, well, the low castes won't try to emulate the Brahmins, to be part of the same universe, the same world. And RSS has attracted uh, low caste children uh, precisely by resorting to this um, device. Right. At the same time, Professor Ahmed, what are some of the concrete policies that have been implemented by the government in order to address the needs of the poorest in Indian society? What impact do these policies have and how can you explain Modi's continued appeal to the lower castes despite the fact that their condition has seen little progress under Modi's rule? The policies themselves um, have continued to really, really hurt. Um, um, India is now uh, ranked lower in the poverty scale. Um, the Indian rupee has fallen drastically. Um, Modi's signature kind of policies like the demonetization uh, really hurt the poor classes. I mean, that's actually a, a very similar scenario to to United States under Trump um, and even continuing in the debate right now in the United States uh, where there is a sharp resistance against social welfare and build back better programs that, that the Democrats are trying to do. This type of a claim to a populism while a, a kind of crony capitalism class denationalizes or takes resources out, um, you know, under Modi's India, the number of billionaires, Indian billionaires have, have grown substantially. So I think what's important here is that the, this charismatic populism or vigilante kind of authoritarianism um, hinges on a claim Towards poverty, but in the figures uh, from uh, that are that are in Christophe's book, um, the 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 BJP's kind of current political picture um, is even more upper caste and is even more kind of uh, distant from from the poor uh, of the country, which are in dire straits. I mean, uh, some of us, or maybe many of us, remember um, early in March 2020 when the pandemic hit and Delhi and UP were uh, under lockdown and the the long walks uh, where hundreds of thousands of uh, migrant you know uh, internally uh, displaced workers were trying to walk their way towards their homes and there were these harrowing scenes that haven't been seen since the partition of of destitute uh, people um, uh, flooding highways and byways uh, in North India. And that really forces us to kind of understand um, this, this a type of politics that isn't quite um, a politics of self-interest. Professor Jafkolo, Professor Ahmed just mentioned the growth of billionaires in India's society. I was wondering how you see Modi's relationship with the Indian business community at large and what kind of support the government has been able to muster from entrepreneurs and business people. Well, the, the links are, are, are very deep with some of them. 
Uh, it's not as if uh, all the businessmen were benefiting, no, far from that. Uh, many of them do, but within um, the winners, uh, you have real uh, friends of the regime. And, and that's a very specific characteristic of many other uh, populist regimes. Well, there is, as early as 2014, a decision that is made that is pro-business to uh, abolish the wealth tax, to reduce the corporate tax. In fact, it has been lowered for uh, existing companies from 30 to 22%. And uh, interestingly, for compensating uh, this uh, lack of fiscal resources, uh, indirect taxes uh, have increased a lot. And in particular, uh, the uh, taxes on uh, petrol, uh, that is such an important uh, uh, <laughs> source of income. I mean, everybody needs some petrol uh, for his scooter, for his uh, three-wheeler, uh, and so on. There is a kind of pro-rich slash anti-poor uh, taxation policy uh, in the making. Um, and uh, you have chronic capitalists, people who have really grown from scratch somewhat, uh, or sometimes, uh, to, to a very affluent status. So you have a very important component of um, this authoritarian regime that is illiberal in uh, economic terms, uh, as well as political and, and cultural terms, and relies on a handful, handful of uh, cronies coming mostly from the industry. You know, interestingly, the IT sector that used to be so influential during the previous uh, dispensation under the Man One Singh government, uh, the uh, big companies like Infosys, Wipro, uh, they, they have lost out to, to these industrialists. You've highlighted the important role of the business community. It seems to me that there are other sectors of society that have also contributed to the support of the populism of the BJP. I'm wondering, Professor Ahmed, whether you could tell us a little bit about the role of the media, and particularly social media. How did the BJP manage to dominate the media space in recent elections, and particularly in 2019? What happens is, is a confluence of two things. One there is Modi's kind of insight that the type of um, claim to um, leadership that Indira Gandhi and the, the Jawaharlal Nehru family represented um, it can actually be taken away from them, as in you can actually claim a new type of dynastic self-making. Um, and I think there, Modi's use of media becomes really important. Um, as mentioned earlier, you know, usage of Twitter um, by Modi was very early and very influential in his uh, in his rise to significance. Um, and then there is an approach to kind of social media, which gets at the question that is how places like Facebook make money, which is virality, right? So it's it's how can you create a controversy? How can you create something that is that gets your attention. Attention span becomes important. And I think here, what we colloquially now call the WhatsApp University uh, came into being. And this is the infrastructure through which 
um, you know, spurious claims, facts, uh, fake stories, um, hatred, demonization can spread across networks. And those networks are primed to do that. They're, they're there in order to create the virality of the viral effect. And we cannot say that this is the story that would have been possible without Facebook, Twitter, actively engaging in, in creating this infrastructure and understanding that what's happening is um, harmful for the societies, but good for their business. Facebook knows what's happened in, in India. And I think that reckoning has still to come. I think we as a global community have still to figure out where and what level um, a re redress needs to happen. Every day we see lynching videos, we see videos of, of drastic violence. Um, every day we say, well, should we be looking for the cause of this violence in a religious text? Or should we be looking for this cause of, of the violence in some other thing? But valid, but at the same moment, should we not ask that this viral video violence exists because of the need to create viral violence, if that makes sense. In, in, in other words, the violence is coming into being as a result of the capacity of it, it to be writ large on society's kind of collective consciousness. I'd like to give Professor Jafkolo the last word. Could you give us some insights about what the future holds? Do you feel that there are potential pathways for a return to pluralist politics in India? What is the role of the opposition? And are there any incentives for the BJP to adopt policies that are more in line with the pluralistic tradition and the diverse makeup of Indian society? There are certainly pathways for a return to some pluralist politics. Um, one, the socioeconomic agenda may stage a comeback. You know, there, there is certainly a limit to identity politics. When it does not deliver, when it results in more poverty, that's one. Two, you have a resilient federalism still in India. Of course, the North and the West uh, are, are so populous that they tend to marginalize uh, the East and the South. Um, and BJP is strong in the North and the West. But still, uh, BJP could not win West Bengal, uh, cannot make any inroad in Tamil Nadu and Kerala. And these are only the most obvious examples. Uh, and third, Yes, there is an opposition. And there is an opposition that um, is certainly very strong in the states I've just mentioned, but that is not absent at all in the rest of the country. The big question in this regard is, will the opposition leaders join hands? And uh, if you look at other countries which have followed a similar trajectory, Hungary is a very similar um, example of well, opponents finally realizing that when you have to confront a man playing on polarization, you better be united because uh, he will have always 50 plus one uh, seats in, in, in parliament. So this is a third possibility of pluralism, but there is a big if behind. Will these leaders 
gather together, rally around a leader, um, and then, of course, will that take the country back to what it was, what India was 15 years ago, before uh, 1992, uh, as Manan said, a major turning point. That's a very remote prospect. But at least to, to stop the trend, the tendency towards ethnic democracy, that would already uh, be uh, an important uh, landmark uh, if, if it could happen. Indeed, this would give us reasons to be moderately optimistic. I'd like to thank both of you, Christophe Jafrolo and Manan Ahmed, for all your insights and your clear-sighted understanding of the situation facing India today. May I remind our listeners that if you want to go deeper in your understanding of India's history and current politics, Christophe Jafrolo's book, Modi's India, Hindu Nationalism and the Rise of Ethnic Democracy, is published by Princeton University Press, and Manan Ahmed's book, The Loss of Hindustan, The Invention of India, is published by Harvard University Press. Thank you again. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Vis-a-vis is brought to you by the Alliance Programme, a partnership between Columbia University, Paris and Panthéon-Sorbonne, Sciences Po, and École Polytechnique. This podcast is produced by Monica Hunter-Hart and Abdabasid Ali, and I'm Emmanuel Kitan. Special thanks to Michelle Wilson and her colleagues at Columbia Libraries. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review on your podcast platform. If you're interested in learning more about the Alliance Programme and how we support academic exchanges, research and collaboration between the US and France, please visit us at alliance.columbia.edu or follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening.